We're taking a break uh, this week. Normally, uh, we'd be in Romans chapter 4. We're going to do that next week because uh, it's a good idea to take a moment uh, some Sundays and talk about what's just happened. There's always a lot of things happening in City, City Bible Church, whether that's here in Cerritos or in downtown L.A., uh, but this, is, this past week was kind of an extraordinary week in terms of all the things that happened. And uh, it was a great week. Uh, Lord did some great things. Um, here's some pictures. Uh, some, some of you guys know that um, on Thursday night, we were in downtown L.A. in Little Tokyo at the uh, Homelessness and Faith Forum. And we had uh, several different speakers that uh, ministered to those who are suffering, marginalized, and poor in the area of uh, being on the streets of L.A. or in vulnerable situations in the home. And so I know you can't see it that well, but that bottom picture on the bottom right is a picture from the forum that night, um, which I think Peter recorded and should be up in its entirety on the church YouTube channel I would imagine by tomorrow. So we'll let you know, know about that. And so it's just a fantastic event. And uh, uh, we wanted to draw Christians into the downtown L.A. area. Um, there's a lot of darkness that gets drawn in there. We want God's people to be there and to care for the most vulnerable. So that was Thursday night. And then as many of you guys were there yesterday, we were at the Maker Skills Day at Hope Gardens. And you guys know Hope Gardens is the facility for women and children experiencing homelessness. It's a Christian ministry of the Union Rescue Mission. Uh, but this is out in Silmar, and I know you can't see inside, and kind of took it from far away. Um, this whole group of us there ministering to the elementary school, uh, junior hires and high schoolers there. Uh, it's a picture of Earl Nicole's game board room, Marcus's uh, cartoon drawing, um, comic book drawing rather, um, Cynthia's floral design. There was a picture from my zombie apocalypse, Book of Revelation escape room, that we're from the Book of Revelation. And so um, I thought that today what we would do is, I know that not everyone was there, but I want to zero in today on what we uh, have learned this past week. And we're just going to call this ministry movement. Now, this message is important for you guys because if you were there, um, this will give you an insight into how I believe the Lord was working what he was teaching some of us. And if you were there, you want to learn from this to say, you know, how can I follow Pastor Chris as he follows Christ in terms of seeing God's word at work in what we commonly experienced? So that's if you were there. If you were not there, you want to take this message as just general ministry principles for serving. Because what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about five ministry principles for serving, especially in a missional context, that really apply whether you are there at Maker Skills Day or Homelessness and Faith Forum um, in other contexts. And so this can be helpful for you, even if you were not there. Um, so uh, let's go. Uh, actually, we're going to show one more picture here. This is a picture um, from yesterday at uh, the the Maker Skills Day, and we're not posting this on social media or anything like that, so I think it's okay to show. Um, but it was uh, fantastic and, and so forth. Um, let's go ahead and move on. All right, so these are the five points here that we're going to be talking about today. And each one of these points could literally be its own sermon. We're not going to obviously do that. 
Uh, I'm really going to just try and draw maybe one or two points from each one of these passages that applied to yesterday and applied to us in terms of future ministry. And my hope is that going forward, we would take some of these ministry principles for serving and apply it going forward for us in the church. I think it will grow us in maturity in Christ and it will strengthen the church to the glory of God. So let me pray for us for a moment and we'll go right into it. Father, this, uh, Afternoon, as we have gathered together, our hearts are full from that beautiful worship, and um, we are, uh, our spirits are filled with joy, uh, gathering together as the body of Christ, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, uh, looking forward to the day of Christ's return. And Lord, we are prepared now to have our minds renewed by the truth that uh, the world has conformed us to its own pattern this past week, and yet we are here seeking to have our minds renewed with the truth so that we may find the holy and acceptable and pleasing will of God for our lives, for this church, for your glory. Praise this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, so first thing I want to draw from uh, this past week was just what we call, I'm just going to call ministry, mission to the one. Mission to the one. Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, go out into all the world to make disciples, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to all the end of the age. The command for all Christians is to go out and make disciples. And yet, many times when we're in ministry, um, we kind of have a skewed view of expectations of what that is. And part of that has been the way we've been conditioned uh, I, I'm almost, I, I might be older than every single person in this room, or if not, I'm close to it. And, um, and so I have a, a broader, maybe uh, chronological perspective than most people, that if you have grown up here, not all of you have grown up here in America or in the West, but for those of us that have grown up here in America, um, you have grown up in what, was, what has been called Christendom, Christendom. Dome. And what that is, or institutional Christianity, is very similar. Christian Dome is a time here in the West that was really been um, since biblical times where uh, the Christian faith and the Christian church were kind of the predominant uh, values and philosophies that permeated society here in the West. It didn't mean everyone was a Christian, obviously not, but Christianity was pretty much had the home field advantage here in the West. And that was really true up until the 20th century. Today, in the 21st century, that's not necessarily true anymore, is it? Here in the 21st century, we're really living in a post-Christian time. It doesn't mean that the unfailing, eternal truths of God's word have changed. That has never changed. But our reaction to it has, many people. And we live here in the 21st century in a post-Christian time where... In Christendom of the 20th century, a lot of times when you try and go out and make disciples, try and go on a missions uh, ministry or some kind of missions, uh, we would kind of be fixated on the results, how big it was, how many people showed up, how many people gave their lives to Christ or made a profession of faith. And we would use kind of these business metrics to determine whether what we did was a success or not, depending on how big the numbers were. 
You see that today. People say, how big is your church? You know, how, how many people showed up to that event? How many people made professions of faith? I remember being a youth pastor in the 20th century. And uh, every month I had to give number numbers for my ministry. I had to report back to the, the lead pastor, how many people showed up at Sunday school? How many people showed up at Friday night? And I had to set numerical goals every quarter that were supposed to be increasing. And so that was one of the main metrics that my ministry was judged by. We don't live in that world anymore. Um, as much as a lot of Christians want to be a mega church, uh, those days for the foreseeable tr- uh, future are over here in the West. And I think that is actually can be a very good thing. Because what we discovered when we look at the ministry of Jesus is that he wasn't necessarily into crowds, was he? In fact, when the crowds got too big, what would he do? He'd get in a boat. I'm going to go over there. You guys stay over here. What would Jesus do? John 6. He would say, oh, you, you, you see me. You got fed uh, by the five loaves and two fish. Well, let me tell you something. If you want to come after me, you got to drink my drink my blood and eat my flesh. You got to know that the only person who gets drawn to me is the one who the father draws to me. Crowds are offended. Most people left. Jesus was not necessarily into crowds. Um, and I think it's really skewed our idea of what the Christian mission um, often looks like in reality. When you look in Luke chapter 15, we are very familiar with this chapter. Many of us have read it heard sermons on this, you know the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal of the, parable of the prodigal son. Summary, the, prod, uh, the parable of the lost sheep. This is the story that Jesus told to the tax collectors and sinners. And he said, uh, there's a shepherd, I'm summarizing, there's a shepherd, he has a hundred sheep. He noticed one sheep is lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 that are with him to go rescue the one sheep that is lost. And if you look in Luke chapter 15, he finds that sheep, brings him home, verse 6. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Skip down, parable of, of the lost coin, very similar principle. This time you have a woman. She's in a home. She has 10 coins that are valuable. She loses a coin. She spends all night looking for that lost coin with her lampstand, finds it, tells her neighbors, verse 9, she says, rejoice with me, very similar to what we just saw in verse 7. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there is uh, before, this, this Jesus saying this, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Parable lost sheep, parable lost coin. It was worth leaving the 99 to go after the one. It was worth searching all night to go after the one coin, the one lost sheep. In fact, Jesus says there's great joy in heaven uh, over one person who has repented versus the other 99 who have not. Doesn't mean unbelievers are more important to God than believers. He's not saying that. But you cannot ignore what Jesus is saying here. He is really emphasizing the importance of going out into the world, declaring the gospel, making disciples of Jesus Christ, even if it's just for one person. One lost sheep, one lost coin. You know the prodigal of uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? 
Son comes to the father, says, I can't wait for you to die. Give me half the inheritance. Father gives it to him. Son goes off to Las Vegas, spends it on wild living. Then he comes to his senses and he says, you know, I'm with the pigs right now. Uh, what am I doing? I might as well go back to my father and I'll be a hired servant. I'm not even worried to be a son. He go, decides to go back. He's, he's in rags and uh, he's lost all his money. Comes back to the father and father sees him from far off. Old man picks up his robe, starts running towards his lost son because he sees his lost son has come home, which was a disgrace in those days. An old man running, an old man pulling his robe up, robe up uh, to run would have been a sign of uh, humiliation for that old man. He didn't care. He loved to see his son come home. He embraces him, says, kill the fatted uh, calf, put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his back. We're going to celebrate tonight. Older son says, hey, I've been with you this whole time. What's going on? You didn't give me all this for me and my friends. And the father says, what? Um, you, you've been with me, but this son was lost, and now he's found. And in all three of these parables, there is this unifying theme of how important it is to go after that one lost sheep, coin, son, or to see them, to celebrate when he comes home. And we are very familiar with these parables, but I wonder if we've really, uh, if we've ever thought about one of the implications of these parables is we understand the heart of God behind this, but I'm not so convinced oftentimes that uh, while we might understand the heart of God for the lost sheep, coin, and son, I'm not necessarily convinced that we as the church value always the one. See, I think we value the large. We value the hundred. Is it worth it to you to go through all this effort that we went through this past week for one person? All the money, all the man hours, all the prayer time. If you knew that was for one person, would we have done it? I mean, maybe in the back of our minds, we're saying, Maybe all these people will show up. And hey, I'm not against a lot of people showing up. Okay? But I remember, again, when I was a youth pastor, I, um, when I was 26 years old, actually it was before I was a youth pastor, I was, a, youth, uh, I was um, a servant in the youth ministry. I wasn't even the youth pastor. And I had just begun, it was my first semester of seminary, a first quarter of seminary. And I just looked around in our city and I said, you know, um, it was actually the city of Cerritos here. And I said, you know, we don't have an evangelistic youth uh, rally here. You know, we got to have one. We got to have one. And um, so I got together. I got about five other youth groups together. Hired us. And we, had, we did this a couple times. We had a, uh, I flew a speaker in from up north. I hired a Christian band. Uh, I got another speaker, I think, from the South Bay. A couple different youth rallies. It was a big thing. I, I was just doing this as, you know, a, a, a regular youth leader. And I said, we need a place for uh, young people to come to know Christ in an evangelistic way. And we did all of that. To the best of my knowledge, only one person made a profession of faith. And I found out about 10 years later, though, that they stuck with the faith and they married a missionary. And I look back on that and go, was that all worth it for that? I remember driving out to San Fernando from Cerritos to go meet with the youth pastor to try and get his youth group here and he wasn't interested but i just thought you know let me try and yeah it was and i would do it all over again 
Because to me, it's not about how many people. And that really framed my ministry up until that point. When we were at the Homelessness and Faith Forum on Thursday night, you know, we, um, we did all this work to put this forum together. And um, at the end of the night, we had a Q&A session. And the last question of the night, someone had texted me, and uh, they had basically said this, I'm, uh, I'm homeless, I'm a Christian, I, uh, I've been struggling with drugs, um, and I'm in a desperate place. What hope can you give to me? And I just read it. I was just seeing it for the first time. I just read it off. And I turned to the Reverend Andy Bales. He's, he's again, the CEO of the Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row. I said, Andy, why don't you end the night by giving this man or this woman a word of hope? And he just turned and he goes, you can have hope. I'm going to give you my phone number right now. You call me right now. And um, I want to talk with you. At the end, and then the night pretty much ended a couple minutes later. And there was a man that was actually at the event, came down to talk to Andy. And um, I didn't even know where Andy left. He just left. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to him. And about a half an hour later, he texted me and said, thanks for inviting me to the event. And, and you guys, if you don't know this, Andy is in a wheelchair. Okay, He's like in his 60s. Two legs have been amputated, and they got amputated while he was ministering on Skid Row. This man has given life and limb to the work of God. So I have like, there's like no way you complain around that guy, okay? There's, he's that kind of guy. So he texted me, and he said, you know, I want you to know that that man came with me. He got into my car. I drove him to the mission, and he checked into the recovery program. Amen. Was that event worth it? For one human being, okay? And I think uh, it, it's a real question that you have to ask yourself. Um, whenever we do an outreach event, that's my view. It's ministry to the one. If you get more than that, that's great, okay? But, um, but I think we need to adopt that mindset. And we need to say all of this effort, and you know what? What if that one was your kid? You think it'd be worth it? What if that was your spouse? What if that was your brother? What if that was your best friend? I'm not talking strangers, right? Do you think it'd be worth it? If you knew that someone you really cared about was going to come to faith at one of these events, how motivated would you be to get other Christians say, hey, you guys, we got to do this, right? We would all do that. And so the reality is, especially in the post-Christian age, the gospel has not changed. The word of God has not changed. But what has changed is people's, um, our expectations of what the response should be. And so I would say that in this age, it's probably more realistic and more biblical outside of the initial years of the book of Acts of what was actually happening there uh, in the gospels. And thereafter, ministry to the one. Number two, unexpected change. We saw unexpected change happen. If you go to Acts chapter 16, this is a passage we've talked about many times over the years. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. If anyone would have known the will of God, the plan of God, outside of Jesus, I would have picked Paul. You give me anyone in the New Testament outside of Jesus, I'm picking Paul. 
The guy met Jesus directly. He was used sovereignly, providentially, through the Holy Spirit to basically write half of the New Testament. Um, This guy was a super apostle. He went to heaven, it says in 2 Corinthians. He would know, right? And yet what we discover is on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16, this is after they went through uh, 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 modern-day Turkey, which is like Asia Minor, what they called it in the Bible, and they come back, and then they go on their second missionary journey. This is right after Paul and Barnabas split. Barnabas takes John Mark in a different direction, and Paul takes Timothy and Silas in another direction. And the original idea was Paul and Timothy and Silas, and also Luke later on, were going to travel north, uh, west up into the northern region of Galatia, which is, again, modern-day Turkey, um, the northern region. And... Um, or, or maybe it's, yeah, it's, it's around that area. Oh, no, I think it's um, like a Bolivia or like a Bosnia or something like that. Um, one of those B countries. Uh, Bulgaria, Bulgaria, I think. Um, but what happened was they were going to go in a direction that got redirected by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God. So let's read this in uh, verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. And they, so Luke's writing about Paul and uh, Timothy and Silas. They went through the region of uh, Perigia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go down to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, which I've been to. It's a port city right on the edge of um, uh, Macedonia, which is northern Greece, um, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go up into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so now what you have in this passage is what? The entire Trinity involved in redirecting Paul and his companions. First, it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 8, verse 6. Then it was the Spirit of Jesus redirecting them, verse 7. And then it was God the Father himself, in verse 10, redirecting Paul and his companions. The entire Trinity got involved in redirecting them in this kind of route so that they could then cross the Aegean Sea, land in Troas, which is in the Bible, modern-day Macedonia, and below that is Acacia, which is modern-day Greece. And out of a result of that came what? Paul's ministry to the Philippians, to the Bereans, to the church at Thessalonica, and his ministry in Athens. At least those, there's other places as well. Think about how important Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens was in the book of Acts. And that was all because Paul and his companions They were to embrace unexpected change and movement where the Trinity was guiding them. Sometimes what we do in ministry is we are not open to that. We go forward and we get stopped. And we say, well, you know, I'm just going to give up. I'm too discouraged. I I experienced a disappointment in ministry. I I experienced a, a, uh, you know, I had these great plans. And they didn't go through as I thought. And so therefore, I must just quit. It's too much. And that's not what you see with Paul and his companions, is it? They went and they were blocked. 
And they go, well, we're going to keep going. Why? It's because we know the heart of God. Why? It's because we have the urgency. And we will keep going. It's clear we're not supposed to go that. We'll keep going. Maybe it's over here. Maybe it's over here. Oh, it meant to be over there. Okay, and then this whole world of ministry fruit, this harvest of fruit was opened up. Don't quit too early when unexpected change comes. And when I say unexpected change, I am not talking about like on a personal level with, you know, your job or, you know, uh, persevering in sports when your team is down, that kind of thing. I'm talking about person I'm talking about persevering and being able to embrace unexpected change as you're doing God's work. And we saw that. We saw that yesterday. Um, we saw that Thursday. I was there on Thursday night, and um, the event was supposed to start at 7. Okay, we're supposed to live stream this event. And um, there, uh, well, I had invited the Hope Gardens uh, Women's Choir there. And uh, we were going to meet early at 4.30 for the event. Some things happened where there was a delay. And so uh, we did go out to dinner. I took them out to dinner. But, um, you know, because of the delay, traffic and so forth, things like that, um, you know, when we actually got to the event, there's other things that kind of set in motion other events that played with the timing of the event. And I was looking at this go, and I was thinking, I totally planned this thing a different way. And it's totally gone a different way. And I had no control over this. And so I had to make this decision. I said, do I stick to my original plan or... Do I change to a different plan to prioritize what I think is important? Because I'm looking at these women, these 10 women singing, and it's important to them. And so I just made a decision, and one of uh, the executive director came up to me and said, oh, do we have time? The women really want to do it? And I said, we'll make time. We will make time for this. We'll adjust. And so we did. Um, I, got, I found out one of my speakers for the event last week. Uh, fell under the weather. And so I spent three days of this past week trying to find two new speakers. I drove out to Hollywood to one of the person's ministries. All of this was unexpected, right? Unexpected change. Was it worth it? Was this worth it? All of this, I probably spent 30 hours on that Thursday event, okay? Was it worth it for that one person who got checked into the recovery program? Was it worth it if someone who heard that hour and 45-minute forum somewhere online says, you know, I want to get involved in fostering children or adopting children? Would that be worth it? Would it be worth it if someone who was listening to this said, hey, you know what? I think uh, me and some people we need to do and partner with the Union Rescue Mission or with Olive Crest, or would that be worth it to you? It was worth it to me. I'd do it all over again. Um, you know, we were there yesterday at um, Hope Gardens, and uh, there was two teams. Some of them were doing these workshops, these maker skill workshops. The second team was doing cleanup. You know, they're clearing out brush. They were making beds, you know, for the facility at Hope Gardens because there's like one custodian for like 200 people, right? So you can imagine how much of a help that is. And so we had talked about this, and there was a, a, a supposed to be, a, you know, a big plan, which kind of changed when we got there. For the, um, for the people cleaning up. And in the back of my mind, I was kind of seeing some of the guys sit around, and, and I, I kind of had envisioned this day where they're just working all throughout the day, right? They, they came, and they're working for six hours straight or, or so forth. And they did good things. They did good things to clear up brush and to assemble beds. Absolutely. 
Um, but then as I was talking with some of, one of them, uh, you know, in the debrief meeting, I was talking with Nathan, and I had totally forgot about this. But when we were sitting in this round room where we we're doing our debriefing, there was this like uh, wooden cross that was looked pretty basic. It was like two planks, like just nailed together, right? And he goes, "Is that the cross that you were asked me about, like about you know, two, two, three years ago?" And I, I didn't know what he was talking about at first. I, but then I realized we had a conversation with Nathan about three years ago. I said, "Hey, can you build a cross for Hope Gardens?" And we just kind of dropped it. And he goes, "Yeah, I'm looking at that." I goes, "I can do better than that. I, I'm going to take that up." I'm going to build them one. And I didn't even remember the conversation. And that, that was something unexpected that came, right? Um, I, I was talking with, uh, you know, David was sharing uh, yesterday, and, and I was talking with Nathan this morning. And I said, you know, maybe this will lead to something new in the future where now we have a better picture of what Hope Gardens needs that so we can help these children and these moms. And that was an unexpected thing that changed. Um, I appreciated some of you guys that did the workshop yesterday. You had all these plans that were set out. Some of them kind of executed in the way you thought. Some of them didn't. But what I really appreciated was the servant heart that you guys had to say, here I am, Lord. I'm just going to make myself available however you want to use me. And sometimes it works out the way we think. Sometimes it doesn't. Are we okay with that? Because is it about us? Is it about me and my plan and me feeling good at the end of the day. Is that, I mean, that's all nice and good and all, right? Or is it about something else in the end? And if it's about something else or someone else in the end, then I've got to be flexible with my plans and what my thoughts were for what it was. And I've got to lay that down sometimes, right? Sometimes you, you just have, don't have control over things. Um, number three, initiative. First Samuel chapter 14 now, you guys are very familiar with 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17 because 1 Samuel 16 is when uh, David is, um, he is basically identified as the next king of Israel by Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 16, even though we're going to look at 1 Samuel 14, which is the one where you turn, 1 Samuel 14. But in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed by prophet. You remember the story. Uh, Samuel comes. He talks to Jesse, who's the father of David and his brothers. David's other brothers are older. They're good looking. They're strong warriors. And uh, if anyone was going to be king, it would be one of them. And Samuel says, no, it's that ruddy-looking shepherd boy, David, that young one. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what's the heart. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and I looked at that, and I was reminded how powerful that is that God looks. And that is very empowering to all of us. In uh, 1 Samuel 17, you know the story of David and Goliath, how... God uses David to defeat the champion of the Philistines. But in 1 Samuel 14, maybe we're not as familiar with that. Because this is a story about Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was the son of Saul, King Saul. Jonathan was like best friends with David. It says that uh, they loved one another in a, you know, in a friendship way. And uh, I want you to turn there and look at this passage because this is a story about ministry initiative. A lot of times we look at ministry and we think, and, and we wait. We say, I will wait for God to summon me. I will wait 
for God to make it very clear what he wants me to do. And so I will wait upon God. Okay? This is actually an opposite story. And so uh, I'm going to read uh, several verses here. And I think I'm going to summarize uh, a bunch as well. So, you know, basically in the first five verses, um, what you have is Israel on one side, the Philistines on the other side. And um, they kind of, one is in kind of the hills and one is kind of below. I think God's people are below and, and the Philistines might be in the hills. And uh, Saul is with the army of Israel and he's with Jonathan. And they're wondering what they should do. And they're looking at the Philistines and they're going, you know, um, we're not quite sure if we should attack or not. And so it says in the first five verses that Saul and the army of Israel were were sitting there and they were basically under a pomegranate tree and they're talking, maybe even they're praying. They're waiting on the Lord. Jonathan, however, starting in verse six, handles the same situation completely differently. In verse six, it says, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison. That's the Philistine garrison who of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It might be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Notice that, you know, Jonathan couldn't do it on his own. He needed an armor bearer. It was with him, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show them ourselves to them, ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. Verse 10. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go for the Lord has given them into our hand and he and this shall be our sign to us. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison um, hailed, I'm sorry, the, uh, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Remember, that's a sign for them to go forward. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up his hand uh, up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer ki- and they killed him, them one after the other. And at first, after the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, uh, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earthquake and it became a very great panic and you skip on down for these several verses Saul's over there he's hearing hearing this commotion he's going what's going on summon the ark of the covenant um and he he, uh he, he talks to his uh, uh priest Ahija uh, and then um it says in verse nine, uh, 19 while Saul was talking to the priest the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more so Saul said to the priest withdraw your hand then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle and behold Every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been um, with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. 
Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle pressed on. I love that. Notice what happened. Jonathan took the initiative. He just said, I know God's heart. I know, and I have faith in my God. I don't have to pray. Let's just go up and see. Maybe the Lord will save us. Maybe he won't. And he went up with his armor bearer, and they attacked, and they had a small victory. Now notice what happened. When they had the small victory, it unleashed the greater victory, which was when they defeated those initial 20 men or so, the Philistines started arguing among themselves. They started turning their swords on themselves, fighting themselves. Then Saul saw that. He's like, wait a minute. Let's go up there. And when they got up there, there was a complete chaos among the Philistine army. Then Saul comes in with Israel and they defeat them. You never know what your small amount of initiative can unleash in God's kingdom. When people see that you are willing to step out in faith, it inspires them. And you never know, you might see this this Goliath in front of you, this mountain of enemies in front of you. And all of a sudden, what you don't realize is um, God will send confusion into the enemy's camp. What you don't realize is that there are other Hebrews in the hills who will come out to join you. But it takes initiative. Um, I was having a conversation uh, with someone, and we were talking about um, ministry burnout. And they were essentially making the point that um, we have to be careful as Christians that we don't burn people out in ministry. And they were raising a very good point. Because that does happen. You can actually meet some Christians who will serve so much, care so much, maybe even in an unhealthy way, that they kind of rise like a rocket, but then they fall to the ground like a shooting star. And it's not very pretty. And that is definitely something that exists in the church, and we want to care for those people, we want to minister to them, we want to make sure that they don't, they, they go at a sustainable, healthy pace. That is true. However, however, I did say to this person, while that is true, that probably describes one out of 300 Christians. Because most Christians don't have actually the problem of ministry burnout. I absolutely believe that. Now, there are some that do. And again, I'm not talking about a certain family situation or certain extenuating circumstances, like someone dies, someone gets sick, you're going through an extraordinary amount of trial, testing, or temptation that necessitates that you kind of rally the wagon around your family or your life, and and you just kind of are trying to make it through the day. I'm not talking about those extraordinary circumstances. Those uh, circumstances exist, and there are people who experience ministry burnout. That said, the normative situation is that most Christians are not in danger of ministry burnout. Actually, in my opinion, most Christians should be more like Jonathan. And that's the problem. We're not more like Jonathan. We do not have, and I'm not talking about any particular person in this church. Okay? But in the church in America, we need to have more people taking the initiative to say, 
we will take the hill. We will step forward in faith and go head first into the battle, not knowing what is going to happen. Because when we do step forward in faith, what often happens is that God works through that faith. Doesn't, it's not an equation, I do this and God does that. But oftentimes God works through that faith and he starts drawing other people out of the hills to join in the battle. It inspires people. And you discover that my small victory had a much greater five loaves and two fish impact. And so we probably need more Jonathans and less Saul's in the church. Because I will tell you this, the world is not lacking for evil Jonathans to take the initiative to destroy God's people. The world is not praying, waiting to take, to just waiting to say, do I have permission to create evil in this world? They are not asking for permission. They are just simply taking the initiative to do that. And for us as Christians, there is a place for prayer. Yes, there is a place for us to take care of those who are hurting or maybe have served too much. Yes, however, if you are not in one of those places, then we should actually be more like Jonathan and less like Saul underneath the pomegranate tree. And uh, I'm really proud of our church because so many of us do. You know, there's a sociological concept called the Pareto Principle. Many of you guys have heard this. The Pareto Principle, it's not a biblical concept, but it's basically a sociological concept that says this. You can take 100 people, put them in a room, and they're going to try and accomplish whatever it is. This is true in business. It's true in sports. It's true in, um, you know, uh, uh, just even in uh, a lot of times a religious context. And the Pareto Principle says this. You take 100 people, and 80% of what gets done is done by 20% of the people. 80% of whatever is produced, whatever gets accomplished in a group of 100 people, generally, naturally, if you don't have anything else going on, you don't have this superhuman leader you know, leading it, casting this amazing vision, or you don't have these 100 people that are superhuman, altruistic, you have normal people, 80% of what gets produced and done is done by the top 20%. And that means what? The other 80% of the people naturally give 20%. And um, what we have to be as a church is a church that beats the Pareto principle. Because you don't need the Holy Spirit to beat, uh, to, to live out the Pareto principle. Instead of having a church where you have 20% of the people producing 80% of what gets done, a church that beats the Pareto principle that's truly fueled by the Holy Spirit is a church where 80% of what gets done is done by 80% of the people. And when you have that, you really have something. And I think we're well on our way to that as a church, and you are to be commended. But taking the initiative is a huge part of that. All right, number four. Oh, you know, um, just quickly before we move on, um, I was riding in the car with Paul and Alice yesterday, and, you know, we were just... We were just really tired driving back. And so when I get tired, I just put on classical music. I feel old, but I don't care because it's just soothing to me. Some of you might, may, like, may like some you know, mood music or like electronic or, or something, whatever that is, but uh, electronica. But I, um, I listen to that 
uh, just calls me. And so we're just kind of sitting there quiet. And then Alice says something, and she goes, you know what, Pastor Chris, I think the Lord wants me to minister to people who are in need or lost. And it just caught my attention. And I said, why do you say that, Alice? And she says, because, you know, I met, I met a little boy, and we, had a, you know, I, we were talking, and he inspired me. And I said, well done, Alice. You know, you um, are willing to take the initiative on something the Lord has placed on your heart. And I commend that. And I really pray that for you, Alice, that um, the Lord would reveal to you the ministry and that you know, ask, how can I serve? How, who can I reach out to? And the Lord can use that powerfully. Number four, uh, rest. And this is kind of the opposite side to Jonathan. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, Um, we're not going to read both chapters. It's huge. It, it, it's a long, powerful story. You should know this story if you haven't read it yet. I'm going to summarize most of it. I'm going to read part of it. First Kings chapter 18, 19, and basically chapter 18, it goes like this. Um, there's a man named Elijah. He's a prophet of God. And there's a wicked king named Ahab. He's the king of Israel. And Ahab tells Elijah to gather at this place called Mount, Mount Carmel. And there's going to be hundreds and hundreds, 450 or so prophets of Baal, 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 and they're going to come against uh, Elijah, and it's going to be a showdown. This is all 1 Kings 18. And how that chapter plays out is Elijah turns to the prophets and he says, um, it's my God versus yours. Mine is the true and living God. Yours is the false God. So why don't you go first? We're going to build an altar here. I want you to take water. I want you to pour it on the altar three times. We're going to make it super you know, I, I'm actually, before he does that, he tells the prophets to call out to Baal and to bring fire down. And it doesn't happen. They're doing this all night. They're calling out to their God. And of course, he's a fake God, so he doesn't exist. And then Elijah just starts taunting them and says, well, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Why don't you call out to him harder? And so these prophets start cutting themselves, you know, as, as shedding their own blood. And then Elijah just finally says, okay, that's enough. Um, take water, put it on the altar three times, soak it wet. Now I'm going to call out to my God, which is the true and living God, calls out to God, and fire just consumes the whole altar. And it shows that God, God showed his power. And then Elijah says, you know what, let's get the sword and let's cut these prophets down. And they all, get, they all die. All right? So you think about the emotional, the spiritual, the physical expenditure of just everything that Elijah had for that to happen, going through the whole night, praying, um, seeing this miracle of God, he must have been exhausted. Then he goes in to King Ahab, and um, he tells him to look to the sea, and there's a cloud that appears um, that um, to show that the Lord was with Elijah, basically. And in First Kings 19, Ahab comes and he tells he tells his wife. Jezebel, um, Jezebel, who's this wicked queen. She's the one that was talked about in Revelation 2 and 3 about this wicked queen Jezebel that affected the church, uh, churches of Re- book of Revelation. And Jezebel says this, I heard what you did. Uh, you'll be dead in the next 24 hours. Now, you would think that Elijah at that moment, I've seen the hand of God destroy these prophets. You will be the one that's dead a day from now. Do you do not come against the the servants of the Lord, but he doesn't. 
In fact, uh, again, I'm summarizing. He says, uh, verse 3, he was, then he was afraid. This is Elijah. Rose, ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down in the broom tree and asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father. So what happens after the miracle is Elijah gets threatened. He cowers. Then he runs from Mount Carmel to Beersheba. That's about 50 kilometers. It's about 30 miles. Then the next day, then he went, after that, he went another day's journey, which is another marathon. So he basically runs two marathons after that. He's completely exhausted. He falls into a depression. He has suicidal thoughts. He wants God to do him in. You go down into the chapter, and God says, eat, drink, rest for 40 days. He comes down to a cave, verse 9, and God says to him in verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, I've been jealous for the Lord, um, for Israel has forsaken the covenant, thrown down their altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left. They seek my life to take it away. And Elijah was distressed at the evil of his people that had happened beforehand. And uh, he felt he was the only one. Now, I'm going to summarize the rest of the chapter, which is basically God says, you know what, Um, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And what you're going to do is you're going to appoint a successor, a man named Elijah, even though you're Elijah. You're going to appoint a successor, Elijah. You're going to appoint a new king to Syria. You're going to appoint a new king over Israel. Um, and by the way, there's 7,000 of my people that have not bent the knee to Baal. You don't know about that, but they're there. So Elijah goes on his way. You would think that Elijah, this incredible man of God, would have not cowered in the face of Jezebel, and yet he did. Why? I think part of the reason why is because after there was this tremendous victory, there was a defeat in his own character. Uh, and feared, and the Lord had to restore him. And what we want to take away, one of the things we want to take away from the story, there's a lot of things you can, power of God, um, the, the lack of faith of man, but I think another thing you can take away, and the restorative nature of God, is to say, when you have done, been part of a work, an Elijah-like work, where you've seen God move powerfully, and you're exhausted, be careful. Um, because we can fall into temptation and testing. The enemy knows that you're spiritually weak. The, flesh, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, right? And I say this to people. I say, you know, um, if you make a decision to give your life to Christ, if you make a decision to get baptized, if you, if you make a decision to renounce some evil ways in your life, truly renounce it, like smash the idols, right? And you go for it, and you make some declarative victory in your life. Um, just be very careful because you can be so exhausted going through that that the enemy actually circles back around the back and attacks you from the back. And you're like, oh, why am I so down now? Why am I so. Well, that's exactly what happened to Elijah. That can, I have seen Christians get baptized and then fall away from the faith. Um, and it doesn't have to be that dramatic. It can just be personally, right? We can get more impatient because we're, we're tired. 
We're stressed. We're hungry. Who here is at their best when they're tired, stressed, and hungry? None of us. And so when we're tired, stressed, and hungry, and then now you, you go through this huge ministry, you know, output of your, of, of, of your time and your strength, and uh, it can even just look at this small level of, I become more impatient, easily angered. I become more argumentative. I start to think the worst about people rather than the best of people. I start to look at myself. I'm the only one, Lord. I have all this self-pity. Um, Lord will restore you. He will restore you. Okay? But just be aware of that. Be aware of that dynamic. Sometimes it's you. But sometimes it's also being aware of the circumstance of which you've just gone through. Um, I know some of you can't do this, and that's you know, but you don't have to do it exactly like me. Um, tomorrow, I'm just going to. Um, I've been substitute teaching during the days. I kind of return back to substitute teaching part time uh, in work. So I've been substitute teaching like three days a week um, now. But I'm not going to do that tomorrow. I'm just going to rest because all of this has been. You know, fantastic, but I have been gone through a lot this week. Um, so I'm just going to rest tomorrow um, to take my own advice. And, um, and so that's important. Last point for today is gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Context in Second Corinthians chapter eight, we're going to look at verses nine, just verse nine actually. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, "I'm going to come visit you." And uh, when you know when I come, or some me and my some of my ministry companions come, I want you to take up an offering so that when I get there, I'm not like asking you for it. And the reason why I want you to take up this offering is because I'm going to take this offering, I'm going to take it back to Jerusalem, and this offering is going to help the poor believers in Jerusalem. Um, and he starts off chapter 8 by saying that there was these other churches, uh, the churches of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, right? And um, because he's telling them there's these other churches in Macedonia, verse 2, that they had a severe test of affliction but out of their severe test of affliction, they gave an abundance out of abundance, and they gave out of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity of their part. And so he's telling them there's these other Christians who have gone through severe affliction, who have given generously. Corinthians do the same for other believers who are in need. Um, I, you know, I, I've seen that, and that is so inspiring to me because I, I know people, and some of you guys know some of the people at our church are from the church where I used to pastor in downtown Long Beach. And um, there's a story that I tell in one of the books that I wrote about um, someone in our church had uh, gotten their laptop stolen. They couldn't pay for it. So our small church came around and said, okay, we're all going to raise money to buy this person a new, new laptop. It was like $1,500 or something. It was really important. Um, but actually, there's this principle in the Old Testament of restitution, which says that um, restore the person, but give 20% more to make them better off than they, they were in the beginning. So we said, we're going to make it 1500 So Lorraine and I gave $100. We felt good about that. 
Um, and then someone who was collecting, it wasn't me collecting it, someone else could collect it, say, hey, we got all the money, we're going to buy this person's new laptop, it's $1,500. I was like, that's great, what a great church. I then found out that of that $1,500, $800 came from one person. And that $800 came from a person who was working part-time in a blue-collar job and hardly had any money. And I didn't feel so good about my $100 then, you know. Um, and I thought about this passage, had helped in a time of severe, they're going through a time of severe in affliction, but gave out of abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, and they're overflowed in their wealth of generosity on their part, verse 1 and 2. And so he's calling the Corinthian church to do that. And then he says why in verse 9. He says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. That's what Paul reminded the Corinthian church. He said, we're poor. Jesus Christ was rich spiritually. He became poor in his incarnation. He became poor in his crucifixion. He rose again from the dead that we who place our faith in him might become spiritually rich having the riches of God's grace, having the riches of God's forgiveness, having the riches of God himself, having the riches of uh, an eternal destiny in heaven saved from hell. We were poor. He was rich. He became poor so that when we place our faith in him, we might become spiritually rich. I think about that. Um, we were at this closing thing. where So t- uh, yesterday... Um, you know, we had eight different workshops. I was uh, running a workshop. We called it the Zombie Apocalypse Book of Revelation uh, Escape Room. And, uh, you know, there's so many of you. I'm going to miss some of you, right, who were part of it. Darcy was part of it. Uh, Kyle, Anita, Alexis Padilla, uh, Michelle. There was Curtis. Um, uh, who almost am I missing? There, there was Cor. There was Cor. And I think Cor, your friend, was there too, right? Um, and uh, Keen, Keen too. See, I'm my own son, right? Keen. <laughs> and um, so we were there, and, you know, it went fabulously. Th- these guys were superstars. They were total superstars. They didn't even need me, really, there. And um, we did it three times, and I gave a devotional at the end, and I said, look, uh, you know, we had fun, and it was scary, but I want you to know, and I read them a passage from Romans 7, and I said, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. He says, um, who will save me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's talking about sin in his own life. And he says, but thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved me. And I said to them, look, you know what? This whole room was about this. Paul says you have a spiritual zombie inside of you that causes death. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into your life. He destroys the zombie. He kills the zombie. He cleans up the mess that the zombie has left in your soul. Sometimes the zombie kind of leaves, you know, kind of tries to get back to life, but he's ultimately been killed by the cross. And I turned to them and I said, how many of you have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? How many of you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Believe that he has risen from the dead on the third day and are willing to follow him all the days of your life, not turning back, acknowledging him and following him as Lord and Savior. How many would like to have everyone bow in prayer? 
And uh, there was about four kids that raised their hand, you know. And you, know, you just never know, right? Is that a reaffirmation of the faith they've already had? Maybe. Is that a first-time profession of faith? Maybe. Is that kids not really knowing what's going on, and so they just kind of raise their hand because they're friends? Maybe. But I started praying. I said, repeat after me. Pray this prayer, and if you really mean it, that's your, that's, uh, the Lord will do a work in your life. And they all started praying it together. And um, I hope that that was genuine. I hope it was. But when you go and help those who are in need, Paul was saying that to the Corinthian church. We did that yesterday. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. And what you're saying is, I am reminding myself that I was once poor and wretched. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of death? And Christ came so that I might be spiritually rich with the grace and life of God in me. Sometimes you hear that as a Christian, and it gets old. Let's be honest. But it becomes fresh and new when you step into a context when you see before all these people in front of you who are in desperate need and you share words of life, and I hope, you know, maybe it was genuine. I don't know. They're professions. But, um, and that renews the life of God. And you know, some of you, the best thing you can do for your faith, the best thing you can do, you, you should read the Bible and you should pray. I'm not saying that. You shouldn't. You should. But one of the best things you can do is actually get involved and having people in your life where you are discipling, where you are raising up, where you are serving, so that you can start to use what God has invested in you. And it reminds you of the power of the gospel in your life. Sometimes if we sit and we don't do that, it starts to get old and tired and lukewarm. And that can be a very unhealthy place to be. Now, I'm not concerned about a lot of you for that. But if you're in that place, um, let's preach the gospel to ourselves as we serve others. All right, let's close in prayer. Fathers, we close in this time of worship. Um, I pray. I just want you guys to bow your heads right now and say, and come to the Lord and say, Lord, do a new work in me. Lord, what initiative do you desire for me to take? What ministry, what mission do you have? Lord, how do I need to take care of my soul in this tired and dry place? Or how do I need to take the initiative to say, I know your heart, I know your scripture, I know my heart, I need to move forward. How do I need to share the gospel with others, Lord? How do I need to be open to being shaped in surprising ways by you? And even if it's just for one person. So Lord, I pray you'd reveal that to everyone here. They may walk forward in obedience to your commands, to the leading of the Spirit in their life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand. We'll close in worship.